Ephesians chapter 1, not chapter 3, chapter 1. We'll be reading Ephesians chapter 1. If you have a copy of the Black Church Bible, you can turn to page 917. If you need a copy of God's Word, one of the ushers in the back would, uh, would be happy to bring you a copy. You can just simply lift your hand and they'll bring that to you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you've been paying attention, well, to a couple of things. Uh, first of all, we pride ourselves on not making mistakes in the bulletin. Uh, we made a couple. And... Uh, I apologize. The most amazing one is uh, on page uh, four, where it says corporate worship service. Uh, we try to put there just a little summary of what the service is about. This is what this one says. This service focus on our future inheritance when is ironic when you consider the sermon, which frankly makes very little sense. And I apologize for that. That was me typing rapidly on Friday and uh, that's all my fault. Uh, what it was supposed to say was this service focuses on our future inheritance, which is ironic when you consider the sermon. So there you go. And that will make more sense as we get going. We're thinking about inheritances. Wouldn't it be great to just like tomorrow get a telegram? <laughs> Do they have telegrams anymore? Uh, some form of communication telling you that you have just become the recipient of an, of an inheritance, a massive inheritance, free money, like $30 million. You just inherit it. It's yours. Do with it what you would like. That sounds okay, doesn't it? Or if you want to be one of the heirs of uh, Mr. Samsung, I don't know if that was his name, but recently he passed away, 
And uh, his inheritance to his children was, uh, to his two daughters and his wife, $1.5 billion, uh, which you know it's a big inheritance when it costs you hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes to get your inheritance. $1.5 billion. So, so the idea, the concept of a future reward, a, a, an inheritance, it's a very well-known idea. We've been singing about it this morning and thinking about it. Um, we're awaiting a day when we're going to receive an inheritance. Uh, Peter describes it this way, uh, 1 Peter 1 verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Do you know what comes next? Reserved in heaven for you future inheritance. It's reserved in heaven for you. Nothing can happen to that inheritance. Or as Paul speaks about it in Ephesians 1 verse 14, uh, the end of verse 13, the Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So as we'll see in coming weeks, the Spirit is granted to us as a kind of down payment or promissory note that there's a future inheritance. So it's no wonder then that you would read Ephesians 1.11 and think, well, that's referring to the same thing, a future inheritance. And, and, and I understand, especially in the ESV, why you would read it that way. And I think if you're reading it that way, you're actually wrong. I don't think it's talking about the same thing. I understand why that happens in English translations. Um, and so this is a bit of a weird sermon because I'm going to start it off by trying to show you a slightly better way, I think, of translating Ephesians 1.11. And uh, cover your ears for a moment, kids. We're going to talk about grammar, which I know is terrifying. Whenever you hear the word grammar, uh, it was terrifying for me. <laughs> it still is. Uh, anyway, I'm going to argue that based upon this sort of like improvement on the translation, that Ephesians 1.11 actually does not apply to you. Rather, it's speaking about Jewish Christians actually being the inheritance of God. They're, they are God's, God's inheritance. I think that's what Paul's saying in 1.11. So chapter 1, verse 11 is not talking about the future inheritance, the future reward of Christians. It's describing how Jewish Christians are God's reward. And then I'm going to try to show you how, this is, so stick with me for a second. I'm going to try and show you how even though 111 is not talking about you, there are other verses, even in Ephesians, that say the same thing about you and me as Gentile believers so it's not just Jewish Christians who are God's inheritance. It is all of us who believe on Christ who are God's inheritance, God's reward. Get your mind thinking in those categories. And I'm taking the time to do all of that because we're getting ready to meet with Jesus at this table, right? And that's one of the most precious things that we as Christians get to do. We commune with God through Christ. And this text, in some unexpected ways, um, takes us to the table. At least they were unexpected to me until I began studying verse 11. 
So the whole point here is that it, in 111 is not that you and I have an inheritance waiting for us. The point is that God has an inheritance waiting for him. And that inheritance is, to, to use other biblical language, the Jew first and then the Gentile. So let's start with the ESV text of 111. Uh, this is the Bible I normally preach from. It's a great translation. Here's how it translates this verse. In him we have obtained an inheritance. All right, so in Christ we've obtained an inheritance. It sounds like something future, something that is to come. Now, just keep that in front of you. I'll read to you from another English translation. There's different ones I could read from. I'm going to read from what's called the NET Bible. I think it stands for New English Translation. It's kind of like the Wikipedia of Bible translation. It can be great. can also be terrifying. Uh, anyway, verse 11 in the NET Bible says this, which is a little closer to, I think, what the text, what Paul was actually writing. So just you look at your verse 11 and then listen to this. In Christ, we too have been claimed as God's own possession. You see how that sounds a lot different? So ESV, in him we've obtained an inheritance. Net Bible, in Christ we too have been claimed as God's inheritance or possession. And that seems really different because it is. And, and both Bible translations are doing their best to get across the meaning of a word that is only used one time in the Bible, and that's right here. And whenever that's the case, uh, when a word is only used once, it's a little, you know, we don't have the same kind of sample set to try to figure out what it means. But they're taking this one word, and some translators are saying it's we have obtained an inheritance. Other Bible translators are saying, no, we too have been claimed as God's inheritance or as an inheritance. Which one is right? Do we obtain a future inheritance, or are we the inheritance of God? I'm going to argue that we are the inheritance of God, or at least, point number one, Jewish believers are the inheritance of God. So the two options um, we have an inheritance waiting for us, or we are the inheritance that belongs to God. I think it's the second one. When I was in eighth grade at John G. Althouse Middle School, I had Miss Egerton, who I'm sure was a lovely person, but I was terrified of her, and she looked at me one day and said, I don't think you will ever understand English grammar. <laughs> that is not a vote of confidence. When, how old are you in grade eight? I don't know how old that is. Anyway, I spent most of my life being terrified of grammar. So if you think grammar is hard for you, imagine what it's like to be me, standing up here in front of you trying to do grammar things. Terrifying. However, it is grammar and syntax and context for the win, baby. Let me show you how. Uh, first of all, we're going to talk about the passive voice, all right? So the word that is used here, in its just most simplest meaning, the, the, the idea of inheritance isn't even really there. It just simply means to appoint by lot or to allot, to assign. The idea of inheritance comes because the, the root of the word kind of is used with the word inheritance. And, and it's often, this word that in 111 is often used in other places, like in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to speak about assigning an inheritance. So think about the tribes of Israel. Each one is assigned by lot their a portion of the inheritance. What's the inheritance? The promised land. Each one is assigned by lot. But here, 
Paul, I think, very, very deliberately puts this verb into the passive, meaning somebody's doing something to someone. So an active verb would be he hugged. The passive of the same verb would be he was hugged, right? So who's receiving the action? In the passive, it's, it's the person he was hugged. So same verb, different voice. And that changes the meaning, doesn't it? So the most natural way, you're doing great grammar class, the most natural way to understand 111 is we were allotted or we were claimed as the inheritance. We were claimed by God as his inheritance rather than we were assigned an inheritance from God. So you could say uh, we were made a possession of God, we were made an allotment of God, or as uh, in whom we were also made the inheritance of God. All right? You getting the distinction? Now hold that thought, and now we're going to look at pronouns. All right, pronouns. Remember your pronouns? What's a pronoun? Don't shake your heads in disbelief. Uh, pronouns are words that stand in for um, a person, right, or a noun. Uh, pronouns, you, me, I, we, us, yours, ours, these are all pronouns. Now, Bible readers, careful Bible readers of Grace Fellowship Church, paying attention to whom the pronouns refer to in these verses will help you, it'll make total sense out of why Paul is saying we Jewish believers are God's inheritance. So I'm going to read 1 verses 11 to 14, all right? And I'm, I'm going to make you pay attention to the pronouns, the we, the you, and the our, O-U-R, our, possessive pronoun. And I'm going to try and show you this. In verse 11, the we refers to Jewish Christians. In verse 13, the you refers to Gentile Christians. And then in verse 14, the hour refers to both Jew and Gentile Christians. I'm going to do that. I mean, this is cheating a little bit, but to try and help you see the, the sense of it, I'm going to read verse 11 out of the Net Bible, and then I'm going to go back to the ESV. Are you confused yet? I'm, I've got two English translations going. Thank you for shaking your head. You're not confused. All right, here we go. Uh, Ephesians 1.11. In Christ, we too have been claimed as God's own possession since we were predestined according to the one purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what is Paul doing here? Here's what I think Paul is doing here. Let's start with the we. He's saying, we the Jewish Christians. Now, why this is confusing is because everything up until this verse, we has meant all the Christians. How did the letter begin? Uh, Pat just read it for us a minute ago. Paul, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints, that's Jew and Gentile, who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then boom, like right, verse 3, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our, our Lord. Who's the hour there? Well, it's all the Christians, right? All the Christians. You just told this letter is addressed to all the Christians. Now I'm saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. But there has to be a change with, the, with the, who the we refers to in verse 11 because of the you that follows it in verse 14. It doesn't make sense otherwise. Paul's making a distinction halfway through his hymn of praise. He's been talking about we, 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 and then you, and then us. So there's a, there's a we and a you. There's an us and a them. And, and the we of, of verse 11, at the very least, it has to mean Paul and the guys who are writing the letter with him or who are with him. But he actually tells us who the we is in verse 12. We who were the first to set our hope on Christ. Who were the first people to set their hope on Christ? Jewish, Jewish people, right? Jewish believers. Uh, that's why Paul says things like this all the time in his writings. Uh, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or Gentile. In fact, uh, I would commend to you, this is a new concept, you gotta read Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, because that's the problem Paul's dealing with there. We don't have time, I wish we could, because I'd love to go there with you, but what you see Paul saying there is that there, there is a Messiah that came to the Jewish people because the Jewish people, the children of Israel, are the children of promise. And it has much more to do with God than it does with them. If you read the whole book of Acts, you find out this was the number one problem for the church. In, in the first months of church life, the only people getting converted are Jewish people. In fact, the Gentile, the first Gentile conversions to Christ are so mind-blowing and beyond the scope of anybody's expectations that it came as a total shock that a non-Jewish person could be fully saved. The gospel went from the Jews to the Gentiles, which sounds a little bit like verse 13 in Ephesians 1, and when, and when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were marked off with a seal of the promised Holy Spirit. So that takes us to the you. Paul, Paul knows his audience here. So the we, talking about Jewish Christians, the you, now talking about Gentile Christians. He knows the church in Ephesus, right? It's made up of Jews, made up of Gentiles. That's a huge, huge deal. I just think we don't often put ourselves back into that moment and realize how mind-blowing this was. You've got centuries of just God working with one nation, one people, and for the good news of the gospel to go out to other people is nobody's been thinking this way. You remember back in uh, Acts chapter 10 when Peter gets a vision, uh, unclean animals descend on a sheet, and, he's, and the Lord says, take and eat. He's like, ah, oh, no, far be it from me, I'll never eat. And that happens like multiple times. And then there's a knock at the door, and some dude said, um, I'm here from Cornelius. He said, come and tell us the gospel. So Peter's like, all right. He goes with them, and he starts preaching the gospel. What happens? This is Acts 10, verse 44. 
44. While Peter was still saying these things, the good news of Christ, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And believers from among the circumcised, that means his fellow Jewish believers, who had come with Peter, were amazed. That did not say they were pleasantly surprised. That <laughs> does not say that they were mildly amused. It says they were amazed. The descent of the Holy Spirit, speaking in a foreign language, is an evident work of God's saving work. They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For the hearing them speak in languages or tongues, extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to remain for many days. So when Paul switches, all right, from talking about we to you, he's making this distinction. We, the Jews, who were the first to believe in Christ, you, the Gentiles, who were the second to believe on Christ, which leads to then this sort of pregnant plural pronoun of verse 14, the last of the pronouns, the our, uh, the, uh, the, whole, the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we, you might insert the word all, acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Whose inheritance? Our inheritance. Now we're back to everybody. The inheritance that is future, that's waiting Jew and Gentile Christian. So down here in verse 14, you, you get to that future inheritance, the great reward at the end, the undeserved thing, the thing that's reserved in heaven for you. But that can't be what Paul's talking about in verse 11. In other words, there are two inheritances to think about here. Our future inheritance reserved for us in heaven, which is described in verse 14. And then the people of God, who are God's inheritance, described in verse 11. Let's lean into that verse 11 a little more. I'm going to use the Net Bible. We'll just think about this a little more. What does he say there? In Christ, we too have been claimed as God's own possession. Now, what does Paul mean by this? In Christ, we have been claimed as God's own possession. We take that to mean that in Christ, God has chosen certain ones of the Jewish people to become his inheritance. Think about that. God's inheritance is a group of people. The, the old American Standard Version translated it this way, in whom also we were made a heritage. Heritage is another word for inheritance. We, we Christian Jews, were chosen as God's portion, God's heritage, God's inheritance. God chose to make Israel his inheritance. He chose to make real people his great reward, his portion. If that's a new thought to you, then I just take you back into the Old Testament for a moment because this is in line with how God spoke about Israel all the time. Zechariah 2.12, the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion. Deuteronomy 9.29, for they are your people and your heritage or inheritance whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Deuteronomy 32.9 in the Song of Moses, but the Lord's portion is his people Jacob is his allotted heritage. 
Or as Solomon prayed when he dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 51, they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Or even in the Psalms, where you might hear a couple of themes from Ephesians 1.11 coalescing here. Psalm 33, verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage or his inheritance. So in Ephesians 1.11, Jewish Paul is making the point that Jewish people who have repented from their sins and trusted in Christ, the anointed one, what's the, what's the other word for that? Messiah. <laughs> the promised Messiah, Paul is making the point that people have trusted, Jewish people who have trusted in the Messiah, prove, all right, their faith in Christ proves that God keeps his promises. It proves that God has been true or faithful to his word. What word? You may want to look at this one, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20. This is Moses telling the people of Israel, Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. God promised, I will have a people to be my inheritance. A people from out of Israel. And here in Ephesians 1, Paul's arguing the fact that there are Jewish Christians is vitally important because it proves that God keeps his promises. He's not forsaken his inheritance. He's not forsaken his heritage or his people. He has sent the promised Messiah, and he saved a whole bunch of Jewish people to make them his own forever, his inheritance. You see, at one level, this corrects an error that, that the church is, every generation, the church is tempted to believe this error. What error? The error would be to think that God gave up on Israel and turned to the Gentiles. And when you're a Gentile, you think, well, it's, that's not so bad. Like, I, I profit from that. That is good. I want to be saved. But the problem with that is, if God broke his promises to Israel, he might break his promises to you. Right? If God broke his promise to Israel, he might break his promise to you. Paul is saying, uh, that's never going to happen. <laughs> it's just never going to happen. God keeps all of his promises. We Jewish Christians are his inheritance. Just like he promised he would have an inheritance, we is it. We is the inheritance. That's the way Paul is using the words here. They are specifically speaking only about believing Jews as God's heritage or the people of his own uh, inheritance or possession, which is why, by the way, you would read that and say, why is he kind of repeating 
what he said earlier. Well, he's not actually just repeating it. He said these things, almost all the same words, right? These were true about all of us, but now he's saying it's particularly true of us Jewish Christians. We've been claimed as God's own possession. So Jewish believers are his inheritance. People are God's inheritance. God's inheritance does not consist of money. It consists of people. But here's where I take a crazy turn in this sermon. All right, great job on the grammar and stuff. Number two. Gentile believers are also God's inheritance. So after going into all this trouble to point out to you that verse 11 doesn't apply to you, uh, there is a sense, however, in which we can say the same thing about us. Not because we just want it to be true. We're like, oh, if it's true for them, it should be true for us. <laughs> That's just not how we read our Bible. Uh, we also are God's inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 is not saying that. But not many verses later, Paul tells the Ephesians what he's been praying for them, both Jew and Gentile. And he says this, my prayer is, verse 17, Look at 117, chapter 1, Ephesians, verse 17. My prayer is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Not the inheritance that awaits the saints, rather the inheritance of God that is the saints, that consists of the saints. Paul is praying for us Gentile Christians to come to understand, and, and Jewish Christians too, all the Christians, he's praying that the Christians will come to understand what they are to God. Do you know who you are to God? You are his allotment. You are his inheritance, his heritage, his reward. In one sense, you are what God is waiting for. I want to say that again. In one sense, you are what God is waiting for. So Paul's prayer is, Father, cause your spirit to make them understand that they are your inheritance, that they are the reward of Christ's sufferings, that this is how much you love them. I feel like I just need to pause there for a moment. Since, since Paul said he was praying they would understand this, I'm assuming there's a bunch of you here who aren't understanding this. It comes from prayer. So I want to say it again. We're not talking in 111 about our future inheritance. We're talking about people being God's inheritance. And what Paul's praying for in verse 17 is that very thing, that the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians would come to understand that they are God's inheritance. We are, the people of God is what God is looking forward to. You know how you look forward to an inheritance. Can't wait till the day I receive the inheritance. This is how God sees his people. It, it was pondering this. F.F. F. Bruce, excellent commentator, wrote this. 
that God should set such a high value on a community of sinners rescued from perdition and still bearing too many traces of their former state. This might well seem incredible were it not made clear that he sees them in Christ. As from the beginning, he chose them in Christ. So it's no wonder as you, as you progress through this letter to the Christians in Ephesus, you get to the next prayer of Paul where he's asking God to give all these believers the strength. Think about that. He's praying that God would give people strength to comprehend and know, verse 19 of Ephesians 3, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He is praying that they would be strengthened to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And I think when we read this and you start to think in these categories, wait a second, I am the inheritance of God? It sounds kind of wrong, doesn't it? Like, really, me? And so we want to say with the apostle, like, Lord, show me that. Help me to feel that. Help me to live this way. Help me to believe these things are true. Show us how much you love us. Show us how much we mean to you. Show us what it means for us to be your inheritance. And that takes me to number three. Every member of his inheritance, so Jew and Gentile, belongs at his table. Belongs at his table. So let's Metaphorically speaking, let's slide our chairs up to this table for a moment. Here we are about to consume emblematic things, bread and wine. These things that are symbols of his love for us. And that us means something. This communion that we have, it's not some religious rite open to anybody who happens to feel like it. We are, in reality, in real time, communing with God here. We're connecting with God in a particular and meaningful way that he has prescribed. It is a spiritual thing being carried along by physical representations of his body and his blood, the body and blood of a real sacrifice. And it would be an utter mockery for you to join with us in that if you were not a Christian yet. That makes sense, right? If you just showed up at my house, I, I've never met you before, I don't know who you are, and you walk in my front door and you sit down at my dinner table, I don't know who you are, you're unknown to me, you're uninvited, and you're acting like you were one of my kids, pass the carrots, <laughs> what are you doing here, and what's your name? And in many ways, that would be very offensive. And so while this is a table that we are very glad to invite guests to, those guests have to already have been saved by Christ. They have to be part of the extended family of Christ. And in almost every case, the way to tell this is that they've obeyed Christ, they've been baptized, and they've been made a member of a gospel-preaching church. And if that's you, we would love for you to pull up a chair to our table. We don't really pull up our chairs. I'm speaking metaphorically. But I'm just saying, if you're self-identifying as a Christian, you're not attached to any one church, you're just kind of floating about and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, how on earth are we supposed to know if you belong to Christ or not? 
I mean, if that describes you and you really are a Christian, you have other more pressing things you need to worry about. Get baptized, join a church, then participate in the family meal, the Lord's Supper. And we'd love for you to do that here, or we would love to help you do that with another church somewhere else. But don't float, friend. The Bible doesn't conceive of floaters. If that's all confusing or new to you, then you come talk to me or talk to one of the other elders. You'll see a couple up here serving the table today. We would love to help you with that. But for you, the members of Grace Fellowship Church, and all of those who are going to be joining with us today as our guests, I want you to come to this table with one thought in mind, all right? And we're coming to the table today with this thought in mind. We are his inheritance. We are God's heritage. We are God's prized possession. Let me go back to that quote by F.F. Bruce again. That God would set such a high value on a community of sinners rescued from hell and still bearing too many traces of their former state might well seem incredible were it not made clear that he sees them in Christ. My question is this, Christian brother, Christian sister, Do you come to the table today feeling like you're bearing too many traces of your former state? Paul offers a very detailed description of sins. Things that can still trip up Christians. He writes about them in Ephesians chapter 4. Things like this. He tells us to stop lying. Lying is any form of deception, whether something you say or don't say or uh, put a spin on something or exaggeration. These are all forms of lying. Have you lied? Stealing, it says don't steal. Don't take things that don't rightfully belong to you, but work hard so you've got stuff to give away and to be generous to other other people. No harsh words. Have you been beating people up with your vocal cords? No sinful anger, the kind of anger that tries to control people or situations by scaring them into doing what you want. Christians aren't allowed to refuse to forgive people when they ask for forgiveness. No sexual immorality. Anything other than selfless love between a male husband and female wife is sexual immorality. Crude joking whether we're telling the jokes or laughing along with them. Paul forbids this. Covetousness, wanting what other people have. Idolatry, elevating anything or anyone to a place where only God belongs. These are what the Bible calls sins, and they're the kinds of sins that Christians commit. They are violations of God's prescribed way of living. And sadly, it's not like, you know, you become a Christian and never sin again, right? Oh, that it would be true. I mean, sometimes some of us get saved and there's some huge sins in our life that we just stop. And we think, oh, being this Christian life's not so hard. <laughs> and then we learn about pride or selfishness or wrath. We find there are these deep-rooted traces of the old man and the old woman still inside. Christians are not sinless. They are saved sinners. 
They're saved sinners who are trying to progressively live more and more sinless in the world while they wait for the future inheritance of eternal and total sinlessness with God forever. But until then, we still, in the words of Bruce, bear traces of our former state. Why am, I, why am I saying this? Because I think a lot of Christians can struggle with coming to the table. I'm not worthy. I am unworthy to come to the table. That word worthy gets used incorrectly a lot. It comes from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, where Paul wrote to the Corinthians who were messing up the Lord's Supper. And he said to them, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner in an unworthy way, in a way that is not prescribed, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Paul's not talking about being an unworthy person. He's talking about an unworthy manner or way. What was the unworthy way? Well, the, the rich people were having their own like luscious feast of the Lord's Supper, and they're like, poor guys, tough for you. I guess there's nothing left over for you. It's ridiculous. It is, it is the unworthy way of participating in the meal together. It is to be one meal of all of God's people. So, so the admittance fee to come to the Lord's Supper is not your personal worthiness as if suggesting that, well, I've sinned so badly this week, I can't participate in the supper The admittance fee for the table is the blood of Christ. (laughs) So every Christian is to come every time. And if you sinned really badly this week, then you should start doing business with God right now because you don't want to come here as a hypocrite. So confess your sins and own them and ask him to forgive you. The fee is paid. It's totally paid. So your participation is not based upon your own personal feeling or worthiness unless you're coming to the table feeling very worthy. I'm way more concerned about that. Because if you're coming here thinking like, nailed it, man, I deserve some wine and bread, then you are not understanding anything. The reason you come here, the reason I come here, the reason we are worthy enough is because God has claimed us as his own. You, the real you, with all of your failings and foibles and follies, Jesus came and died for you, and God made you his inheritance. Why? God chose you before the foundation of the world in Christ. God set his love on you in eternity past in Christ. God decided to adopt you to himself through Christ. God redeemed you by paying for your release with the blood of Christ. God forgave you the depth of your sins by the greater depth of his grace in Christ. And God will bring you safely through the day of judgment in Christ. God loves you because of what is in his heart not yours. You're at this table because you are his inheritance. And since you are in Christ, in the eyes of God, it's like Jesus was sitting across the table from him, not you. He sees you as perfectly righteous That's how happy God is to have you at his table today. He is. 
Imagine a man who had a very hard life, ends up on the streets, just, just hard, 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 hard. He's got no way to get by, so he starts stealing. He breaks into your house, steals all your money. And for some strange reason, he's just in a bad mood. He, he like knocks over all your furniture. He smashes your dishes on the floor. He dumps your food out the window. He breaks a lot of your windows. And then he leaves. And you've got the whole thing on video. So you watch the video. You jump in your car and you go looking for him. And you find him. You say, hey, you, get in my car. He gets in your car. You drive him home. You say, there's a restroom. Why don't you shower up? There's some fresh clothes for you there. And he comes out, and those nice people are just sitting at their table. They've prepared a meal, and they're smiling, and they say, come have dinner with us. What? They, they, that's all they say. In fact, they just say, you know what? We love you, and we would like you to be part of our family from here on out. You say, that... that is that even possible? How could that be? But isn't that precisely what God has done with you? He has looked at you in all your sinful rebellion, and he's made you a part of his family. And he invites you to the table. That thief is you. That thief is me. Now that thief has to believe it. Am I really loved that much? Am I really accepted that much? Is, are there police hanging around the corner? They're going to bust me as soon as I sit down at the table? Is this for real? And God looks at you this morning and he says, yes, it's for real. You are my inheritance. You are God's heritage. You are God's, dare we say it, reward. That's certainly how Jesus thought of it as he carried with them a host of captives on his train. His great reward, the people for whom he laid down his life. No wonder Jude writes, Christ the Lord is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of God's glory with great joy. See, all you have to do is accept that, to believe that, that you are that loved. And that can be really hard to do when you're struggling to string together three days of reading your Bible and praying. <laughs> but too often we undervalue encouragement and we overestimate guilt. Don't get me wrong, there's a place for guilt, but only if the guilt brings you to this table because that's where guilty sinners come, confessing their sins, embracing the love that God has for them because what God said of Israel, can, he can equally say about you. This is Deuteronomy 32. I found you in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. I encircled you. I cared for you, I kept you as the apple of my eye. Can you believe you are loved 
that much, that you are the apple of his eye. Oh, apple of his eye, come to him now. Come to him with thanksgiving and love and adoration. See here at the table the emblems of his love. They're like a token that you are his inheritance. He's waiting to bring you home. He sent his son to die in your place so that you could become his inheritance. He's waiting for you. He, he is waiting for the day that he is going to bring you home. And until then, the Lord's Supper is a little bit like a long-distance phone call. The connection's a little scratchy and a little delayed. But can you hear his voice? God is connecting with you, mediated through these emblems, but God is here. God is ready to commune with you. God's ready to talk. So come, weary sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you. Full of pity, love, and power. Why? He has paid for every failing, and you are his forevermore. I am his, and he is mine. He has made you his inheritance. Would you stand with me? Let's sing of how Christ is ours.